Now, if we could uh, return to Isaiah chapter 1 on page 672. And uh, let's pray before we look into the word. Oh, Father in heaven, we are aware that the world chases around for messages from outer space or to mediums, to spiritual messages, from ultimately from demons. But Lord, we praise you and we thank you that as we come into your word and read your word, Lord, we have a message from the living God. And we thank you that the, the word of God is, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you that the, the word of God abides forever, that uh, the grass and the, and, the, and the flowers fade, human beings live flourish and die but the word of our God abides forever and we pray Lord that this uh, the chapter we look at now from so many hundreds of years ago Lord will uh, come alive to us tonight by your Holy Spirit and convict us Lord of sins encourage us build us up in our most holy faith we pray this in Jesus' name Amen now I've called this uh, this talk Isaiah the prophet's vision. Um, and in fact, if, if I mean, you may not have looked, but there is on the, uh, um, sent out on, on, onto the YouTube channel, uh, uh, a picture of a, um, what's called a bulla, which is basically the impression uh, of a seal, um, on, usually on clay, um, which people had to sign documents and so on. Now this was discovered only in 2018. <laughs> and the incredible thing is that it contains... Uh, it was found near uh, an area where a, uh, an actual authenticated bulla of King Hezekiah uh, was discovered. And then in 2018, they discovered one which actually has got the name of Isaiah on it. You know, remarkable. And in fact, it, it actually has what appears to be part of the word in Hebrew, Navi, which means prophet. <laughs> um, now that is not certain because the first two letters uh, are indis- you know, indistinct um, but however we have a, um, an indication of course of the historicity of Isaiah and of course there is no, there's no doubt at all that the person who wrote the book of Isaiah lived in history if we actually look at this first verse which talks about the vision of Isaiah chapter 1 verse 1 the vision of Isaiah the son of Amos which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Now, these are, these are not um, sort of fairy tale characters. Uh, or we, it, obviously, as believers, we don't think they were fairy tale characters, but historians don't think they were fairy tale. We know from um, all kinds of archaeological inscriptions of the reality of the age in which Isaiah lived. And uh, we have, we know that Isaiah lived, we might say, through the coronation of four uh, kings of Israel. Uh, none of them, apart, uh, uh, none of them really, uh, um, apart from perhaps Uzziah, but amounted to much. Ahaz was a particularly, uh, particularly awful guy. Hezekiah was a mixture of, of, of a great reformer, but some some disappointments. Um, I, I think perhaps I, you know, I, was, I was slightly disparaging of him when I said he might not have added up to much. I mean, he, he had great qualities, as we may see in future weeks. But he also lived through the coronations of four 
dictators of Assyria, four absolute rulers, four men, uh, today we would, we would call uh, 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 warlords uh, of uh, Assyria. And uh, he lived in a time when things were, were uh, moving on the international front. And uh, it's part of, the, uh, part of our understanding of the book of Isaiah is, is to understand that big things were afoot in the international world. Now, like today. Uh, today we have superpowers involved in all kinds of machinations and all kinds of ways and things are on the move internationally. The Assyrians had a long-term objective of basically um, controlling the land bridge between three continents, what the area today we'd call Israel or Palestine. And uh, they wanted to control, they wanted to control um, uh, parts of, uh, of Egypt and of course they wanted also to have trade routes into the Mediterranean so they, because like all superpowers, like ones today, they saw not only the possibility of conquest but also trade routes and raw materials that they desperately needed to carry on building up their, their superpower base. Now the thing is that the, the, the prophecies of Isaiah come to both an internationally fraught situation, a domestic situation of religious corruption, and individual lives who are also called through the message of Isaiah to come to the living God. Now, uh, I was interested to read a, a bit of modern scholarship on Isaiah. That one theory that's been moved forward, were, not particularly by evangelical scholars, but was that um, the prophecies of Isaiah may very well have been disseminated um, by actually being pinned up um, as, as particular prophecies were given in, in the temple. Theory may or may not be so. We know there were false prophets. They disseminated their teaching by word of mouth, perhaps by memorization, perhaps by actually writing them down. In the case, of course, these great prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they were the writing prophets, and they wrote them down, and maybe they made copies. Maybe they were disseminated. Either, whichever way, the, the, the message of Isaiah over his very long career was spread, we know that it was an appeal both to the elite in, in uh, the society of the southern kingdom in Judah, but it was also a message which had particular application to individuals. When uh, the Lord says in uh, verse 18, come now let us reason together, says the Lord. We can see that, you know, we're called by God to a privileged access into an individual meeting with him. Now this may have been addressed maybe to the whole of, you know, the elite society of, the, uh, of both the king and his court or, or perhaps the other corrupt religious elite um, that uh, were around in those days. But clearly it is also something that we may ourselves be involved with. And what a privilege this is. Look at verse 2. It says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, Isaiah actually was, um, seems to have, or the Holy Spirit working through Isaiah, seems to have been um, reminding the people of, uh, of the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32, where after 
Moses had given his law, the holy law of God to the people of Israel. He then was given a song that he said had to be sung regularly to remind the people of Israel down the generations. And this song began, uh, he introduces the song by saying in Deuteronomy 32, verse 1, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak. And let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May, May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the earth. Now, here we see that Isaiah is, in chapter 1, is actually introducing the whole of his prophecies. And God is speaking through Isaiah to say, look, this precious teaching is the teaching that gives refreshment, gives reviving, like the gentle rain upon the tender grass, and how important it is that we should listen to this message. You see, most people see Isaiah chapter 1 as actually an introduction to the whole of Isaiah. And indeed, may have been written at the end of Isaiah's career when he finally put all of, his, all of the material together that he'd written. Um, we could see the introduction of chapter 1 verse 1 it was, was clearly written by someone uh, who, had, uh, who was living at the time of uh, Hezekiah um, and talking about the whole, um, the whole uh, progress of, of uh, Isaiah's uh, career in, in, uh, in teaching. But as, as we actually look at the chapter 1, we see all of the major themes of Isaiah are actually portrayed. And I want us to, to, to think about the fact that God does speak to individuals like us across time, across history, whether we be in the middle of superpower confrontations, which we kind of are at the moment and may get worse in the future, whether it be a time of desolation and and war, which it was for the people of of, uh, the northern kingdom and eventually would be for the people of the southern kingdom during Isaiah's life, he calls us into a personal meeting with him. And how amazing it is that we, you know, our insignificant lives are transformed into something incredible. The children of God having an audience with the king. I mean, how people thrilled are when they get a chance to shake uh, the hands of the Prince of, of, of Wales or, or shake, the hands of, um, shake the hands of the king. But how wonderful it is for you as a believer to be able to, like me, me and you, come to, together to, to worship the king of kings or to have a quiet time by our bedsides tonight or indeed walk and talk with him during our daily lives the thing is this is that the uh, the bible is about real history but it's also not just about the history of salvation the history of god at work within the world it's also about the real history of individual believers the god of uh, of uh, of Jacob and of David, the God of Abraham and of Isaac, this God is also your God who calls you to listen and obey him. Now, uh, I mentioned already that um, uh, this time was a a time of great historical um, importance in the Middle East, but let me just fill in uh, a few few background facts. Israel had been split, split into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, as most, most of us know. 
The northern kingdom had basically rebelled against the dynasty of, um, of David uh, and Solomon. And uh, they had chosen to go their own way. Uh, but unfortunately, their, the election of their kings, the way their society went, that over a period of a century or so, they gradually got further and further away uh, from the living God. Um, politically, the, the northern kingdom was in a terrible mess. As the Assyrian threat gathered, they seemed to remain oblivious to what was, what was going to happen to them. They didn't respond to the threat of, of invasion or the threat of, um, of, of doom, if you like, by seeking the living God, going back to their roots, coming back to the Mosaic Covenant, the, the law of God and purity. They responded to it by simply relying upon themselves. The, uh, the, the Assyrians uh, had, uh, were on the move. Uh, they, they conquered places and they simply went for a very ruthless kind of ethnic cleansing after killing tens of thousands and more of inhabitants, hundreds of thousands. They were then often, the ones that were left alive, they would transport so that, uh, to another region in their empire so that they would never be a threat again. They, they would be you know, removed from their land and they would be a, a useless, bent force. The northern kingdom simply thrashed around with uh, constant political changes. There were coups and revolutions. There were dynasties that lasted five minutes. And all of the time, there, there was a compromise with paganism. There was an approval of, of immorality and prostitution and pansexual behavior. Um, the result is that the, the, the society became more and more unjust and more, more further away from that holy society that God had planned for the people of Israel as a whole, the north and southern kingdom. And they did not listen to the prophets that God sent them. Hosea, Amos, uh, with messages of, of, uh, of, of, uh, of, uh, of repentance and faith. And in the end, in 722... Uh, Samaria fell to the Assyrians and the Assyrians did their thing <laughs> ethnically cleansed them apart from the tens of thousands they killed and murdered as the immediate, uh, in the immediate um, uh, time of the, uh, of the invasion they then simply removed thousands of them 30, they, in, their, in their log they, uh, they said they removed 30,000 immediately uh, but probably more, and then shipped in loads and loads of people from other regions into the area who had no knowledge of God at all. Now, this is partly the background of Isaiah and Isaiah's um, preaching. He had, he, had, he had seen these things, and God, through his Holy Spirit, gave him messages which, if you like, uh, uh, were directly linked to those terrible images of destruction and desolation which had happened in the north and God said was going to be happening in the south unless the people changed and repented. And we, we find in this chapter the themes which are throughout, throughout Isaiah of both an exposure of sin, an exposure of the consequences of sin, and a gracious Invitation to individuals as well as the society as a whole to repent. Now, uh, as I said, we're going. I don't intend uh, to be able to get through the whole of this passage uh, in any de in any depth at all. But I just want to start off with this first uh, subject of 
of the nature of rebellion and sin. Now, I know I know a lady in the, in uh, I've met occasionally, um, lovely woman. Her idea of preaching is to simply say, sin, sin, sin. And she wanders around saying this, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. And that's all she says, you know. And indeed, sometimes people when talking about church, all they, all they talk about is ones that they just talk about sin. Now, well, actually, the reason why people talk about sin is because that is what the Bible, in all of its different books, in all of its different areas, exposes as the key problem. But it doesn't just go and say, sin, sin. It explains. It appeals to an intelligent understanding of the complexity and variedness of people's self-centered and evil behavior. And one of the words that it uses is sin. But there's lots of others. And in fact, if we look at, um, if we look at uh, this passage in Isaiah, we see a dozen or so um, words that is used um, to describe human behavior. Now, notice firstly... Um, that uh, directly after the um, verse 2 in which um, or at the end of verse 2 when um, this um, link to, uh, to Deuteronomy 32 of the, the song of Moses is described we see that God shows that human beings are so dumb that they're dumber than the ox I mean we have that expression in English and in American isn't it it's dumb ox <laughs> well here it says this, children I've reared up and brought me, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner. It's, it's bright enough to respond to the voice of an owner. And the donkey, its master's crib. But Israel does not know, its people don't understand. So the first, the first area of human darkness that is referred to is the sheer spiritual obtuse refusal to acknowledge God as the creator and maker. The absolute stupid blindness that people have, that everything they have, every breath they breathe, all the food we eat, all the experiences we have, and the sunlight and the, and the, and the, and the flowers and the, the songs of the birds have all come from this great creator who loves us. And... Isaiah goes on to say that the people of Israel are like that and it's made worse for them because they, God actually made himself known and made a covenant with them and they were meant to be his children and they have rebelled against his father and of course that, that shows us the second area of sin is, is honoring your father and mother is considered to be you know even amongst pagans is considered well yeah you, you, you look after your mum and dad you don't you know, beat up your mum and dad. It is, it is only the minority of psychopathic, spoiled brats that actually really despise their parents to the point where they actually you know, will turn them out on the street or perhaps even murder them. Fortunately, in our country, most people do love their mum and dad and will look after them as they're getting older. But here the Lord himself says, I brought up children and they've rebelled against me. And we see as a, a sense of tragic, a plaintive element to this, to this saying where, where the Lord God is, is uh, sorrowful that the children of men, the people of planet Earth, should behave in such a way to him. 
And although there are billions of people in, in, on the planet, every single one of them has their own story of their own rebellion against the Heavenly Father. Anyway, in Isaiah it goes on to say, their offspring of evildoers um, are sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. Now notice offspring of evildoers. Now, actually, I'm not going to talk here about sin being transmitted through the, through the human race from Adam. That is true. But I want to think actually in our society about the fact that it's much wider than uh, the question of just our genetics or our, our, our family environment. The truth is that we are the offspring of our society, aren't we? Some of us are offspring of the swinging 60s, others of the sexually immoral 70s. Others of the materialistic 80s, the drug-obsessed 90s. I've chosen a few, a few uh, slogans there to characterize an age, and of course those aren't necessarily absolutely true. But do you get my point? We live in, uh, not just as members of families in, a, in an ordinary sense of the word, but we're part of a society that forms us and creates within us attitudes and forms our behavior. We're offspring of a, a, an evil nation. A nation without God, without, without Christ. We are childs of our times. And in fact, as, uh, as uh, Isaiah says, we're laden down with iniquity. Another word for evil. Uh, a, a particularly strong word for that which is, is really terrifying, an abominable evil. And we're laden down with it. One of the things that... Um, one Christian writer once did was uh, he actually tried to count the number of sins that the average Christian would do during his lifetime and he worked out about a million or so Um, maybe for many of us it is that and more laden down with the breaking of God's law in so many different areas of our character, our emotions our feelings, our thoughts our behaviour and of course he goes on to say in a, a, a uh, offspring of evilers, and I mentioned this when I was reading, corruptors, children who deal cor- uh, who are corruptors. Now, in talking about children, it doesn't mean uh, by, you know uh, in terms of their biological age. She's talking about the children of Israel. They were corruptors of others. Now, this is a thing that all of us as Christians, especially, have to bear in mind. We can lead other people into sin. John Donne wrote this poem, uh, you know, a poem to God the Father. Um, in a famous poem from a few hundred years ago uh, and he says uh, I'm always doing sins and I, I'm always in need of forgiveness and I need forgiveness in the ways I've led other people into sin and he, when he was a young man he was a, a, a ladies man as we might say he had, had all, uh, dozens and dozens of, of corrupt sexual relationships with all kinds of women and as an older man having become a Christian he, he mourns where him leading other people into sin well Christians may do this we can teach other people children grandchildren about anger gossip bitterness we display those things people can learn from them people can be corrupted by them swearing rebellion treating God lightly not really being serious about the word of God not following Christ with all of your heart, not recommending his life to other people by the way we live. Corruptors. 
Now, we, we know only too well about the corrupt influences in our society on the internet and in society as a whole. And yes, that is part of the aspect of our general unbelieving society, but also as Christians, we may actually not be leading people into, into the higher discipleship, but actually may be lowering their expectations. Anyway, uh, he says, they have forsaken the Lord following their own ways. This is on verse 4. They have despised the Holy One of Israel, a despiser of God. A despiser of God. Now, when we, uh, when we hold a holy God in contempt, how awful that is. And sometimes, sometimes Christians, either outwardly or maybe inwardly or not even thinking about it, are actually holding God in contempt. Paul, Paul says in, in, in Romans, doesn't he? You know, have you despised the, uh, the, the, the compassion, the mercy? It's meant to lead you to repentance, not to carry on in the same old way. The people of Isaiah's day were told were utterly estranged. That's the last sentence in uh, last phrase in verse four. Utterly estranged, like a man who's run off with another woman, left his wife, has turned his hatred upon his wife. And try to then take her house and possessions and completely leave her with next to nothing. I mean, it happens. Utterly estranged. And we, in the same way, have, have, have turned against the Lord and uh, completely, completely uh, try to destroy his work in the world. We have a suicidal rebellion. Uh, in in verse, uh, verse 5... Uh, Isaiah says, why, why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? It's like a boxer who's getting hammered in the ring and he keeps on, instead of throwing in the towel, he keeps on getting up and he's hammered again. But he won't throw, throw in the towel. And he carries on in just the same way. Some people in life, they turn away from God and they find that their life becomes a misery. They become alcoholics or drug addicts. They, and things go wrong in their life. And they get battered again and again by their own sins. They lose their job. They lose their wife. They lose their family. They lose everything. They end up on the streets, maybe. They're blasting their life with hatred and bitterness. But they refuse to submit to God. They just keep on getting hammered. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint, completely diseased. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it but bruises and sores, raw wounds. They're not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Now, so there we have all kinds of expressions, <laughs> phrases dealing with sin, but giving all kinds of images and understandings of ways in which people have turned away from God. Now, uh, next I want to notice this. Basically, Isaiah goes on to talk about the consequences, and I'm going to be, be quick on this. Isaiah tells us that the, the result of sin is desolation. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. Now, this probably is a reference to the onslaughts of the Assyrians upon um, the, the towns of, Israel, uh, of the southern kingdom um, in the, uh, during the time of Hezekiah. That was a terrible time. Many, many thousands of, of uh, uh, Jews from the, uh, the southern kingdom were, all, were, were, were um, taken off as slaves by the Assyrians. 
This was at the time when Jerusalem remained free and was besieged. And then there was a great, there was a great victory of God over the, uh, over the Assyrian army and they departed um, from, from the place. But actually, um, the, 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 the southern kingdom was ravaged by the Assyrians and these kinds of things happened. These uh, desolations uh, were happening and uh, the daughter of Zion was left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city, which in fact happened uh, to Jerusalem. And if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Now, Isaiah goes on uh, in, in chapter 1 to talk about the consequences of sin. And he uh, says that in verse uh, 28, Rebels and sinners shall be broken together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you've chosen. Now, here we're talking about sacred places of sexual orgies and pagan, uh, and pagan rites. And you'll be ashamed of those things. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark. And both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. And here we have a foreshadowing of the nature of hell. And of course, one of the things that this points out is, what sparks hell off? You hear people often saying, oh, you know, why has God sent people to hell? Well, the answer is, hell doesn't burn until our evil works lights the fires of hell. God hasn't, uh, God hasn't uh, uh, taken away our responsibility for lighting the fires that will burn in hell forever. Now, we have therefore a picture of terrible consequences. In the New Testament, it's made much clearer that the de- devastation, the physical and material devastation in history of the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom is a picture of what actually happens on the day of judgment when souls that, sins, that sin will be, uh, will be sent into the lake of fire. But the thing is, we can also see that Isaiah tells us that the outward religious rituals cannot save us. Um, when I was watching the, um, the, the coronation yesterday, I have to say, I do have a, uh, a dislike of what I call cathedral religion. Now, what I mean by cathedral religion is not that you can't worship God in a cathedral. Of course you can. But the buildings, the institution, the impressiveness precisely of the actual building itself can create a so-called religious feeling which you can go through. But it's outward, it's not inward. People say, oh, I go into a, when I go into a cathedral, cathedral, I feel the presence of God. Well, maybe. But the thing is that if you really have a real meeting with God, you will be having that experience of God and that relationship with God, whether you're sitting under a tree or sitting at a bus stop. The thing is this, is that cathedral religion, often, especially with things like choirs, in which people who are singing in the choirs produce the most gorgeous music, but whose hearts are often not actually inflamed with the love of the Lord. Again, I'm afraid I I am biased by my background in, in, uh, in chapels when I was at university and friends I knew who who uh, sang in chapel and they used to tell me they used to tell me that you know while they were singing they would be handing out little messages with dirty 
jokes on them to each other, having a laugh. They'd be oh, get up to all kinds of business uh, in between when they, were, when they were singing. Because their hearts weren't actually hearts of believers worshipping God. They were, in, they were interested in the music. They liked the music, the sound of the music. Now, it is certainly, whether it's fair that I've, I've just said about cathedral original, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say, you know, I might be, might be being a bit unfair. But what Isaiah says is this, that temple religion cannot save the people of Israel and the people of Judah from the disaster coming upon them. So he says in verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? What is the multitude of your hymns that you sing, of the prayers that you pray off by heart? What is the multitude of your animal sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now, these sacrifices were prescribed by Moses. They were good and right and holy if the heart was right. But the hearts of the people in, in the southern kingdom weren't right. Pagan religion was now part of their lives, both in private and actually, as we'll see when we look at a passage on a future week, um, uh, the, the actual uh, religion, the temple religion of, of, uh, of Jerusalem had been crucially compromised by a pagan altar um, uh, that was put up in there uh, uh, by Ahaz as a result of his uh, com- compliance with the Assyrians. And God says that all of these outward things are basically an abomination. Verse 13. Bring no more vain offerings, incense is an abomination to me. Your new moon and Sabbaths and the calling of convocations I cannot endure. Because here people are coming together uh, offering so-called worship to the to God of Israel. And yet actually were involved in the most filthy evil practices the most flagrant breaking of the covenants uh, the oppression of the poor which directly um, directly uh, broke the covenants that Moses had made uh, by murders and lyings and sexual immoralities and so on so none of these things these, these things can't save people and then, then finally and so on, I want to finish on this is that we note in this passage we have this glorious foreshadowing of the gospel, of the good news that is in Jesus Christ. In those verses, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, and you shall eat the good of the land. Now, this is incredible grace and kindness. That list of sins that, it, that I've described in just a little bit of detail is horrendous. God's plan for, for human beings to have these, these great and wonderful creatures who, who are living to his glory, who are more glorious than the angels, and yet they've come down to, to living not just like beasts, but more like devils themselves. And yet to these devils like us, The Lord offers this tender, loving kindness. Come now, let us reason together. God isn't calling them to judgment. He will in the end, but 
Before that happens, he calls sinners to come. Let's reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Now notice that uh, the healing of the soul happens, we're told, in the book of Isaiah, through the work of Christ. Later on in Isaiah 53, uh, Isaiah says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds, with his wounds, we are healed. So we have this glorious fact that the sick, completely diseased, beaten up, dying person whose soul is in just raw wounds is completely healed by the blood of Christ, the one who actually went through such pain for us. It's, uh, this is a, a message which, uh, which uh, goes through Isaiah's foreshadowing Isaiah in loads of different, in loads of different places. And we know that this message of God calling people into a forgiveness, into, into souls that are, are completely pure, is something planned from eternity. In Jeremiah 31 verse 3 it says, The Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Now there was a hit by Elvis Presley many years ago called You Were Always On My Mind talking about a man talking about a woman. But how amazing this is true. We are always on God's mind. It is barely (laughs) comprehensible. The God of all, the God of the universe, and you have always been on his mind from eternity. God being infinite is infinitely greater than the billions of people on planet Earth. And it is possible for him, of course, to know everything about every single person. But it isn't just that he knows everything about us. He loves us. And he sent Christ to die for us. He tells us that our names are written upon his hand and heart. We're tattooed upon him. Now... Uh, I'd say to you, any of you who's online or in the church that hasn't come to Christ yet, this wonderful love does apply to you. I mean, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are, who are burdened and heavy laden. All of you. He didn't say, just come to special people that know they're Christians or know that they're definitely saved. No, he said, come to me, anybody, all who are heavily laden, whose conscience are telling them that they know that they're a long way off from God, that they are selfish, they're under condemnation. It might be seemingly small sins, but you know that actually those small sins, as described by Isaiah, are very big sins because they have estranged you from God. Somebody listening online may be tormented by a terrible thing you've done in the past. They're graven on your own conscience. You may have betrayed a husband or a wife, a child, a relative. You've been cruel, stupid and destructive. You might have been in jail for your crimes. You may have done terrible things. But here the Lord says to everyone, Come to me, those who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now this is, this is wonderful. <laughs> this is absolutely marvelous. And this wonderful love of Christ 
radiates now in this place. And indeed, uh, Isaiah, we're told in John's Gospel, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. But even Isaiah, uh, with the great revelations he had, only had a fraction of the knowledge that now has been revealed in Jesus himself uh, in the Bible that we have. And this wonderful love calls us to change. Now, one of the things that we see in, uh, in, in Isaiah is he, there is a call in Isaiah 1 to repentance. He, he, he says about, uh, you know, in verse 16, Wash yourself, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression. The sins of that society needed to be left behind. And uh, in verse uh, 19, it says, if you are willing and obedient, when God calls you, come to me, be willing and obedient to have your life changed. You see, the the call to you to come to Christ to receive complete forgiveness comes with with also the fact you're being called to live a new life. I use this this, um, image in the the open air on Friday, and it, it struck me as, you know, being being particularly uh, striking that if someone was in a house that was burning down uh, I mean I, I, we li- we, we've, I live in a three story uh, townhouse, we live in, as a family a three story townhouse and the third story is about 30 feet above the ground and I keep a rope <laughs> You know, I've kept a rope for 25 years a number of ropes in case there was a house fire that cut off the cut off the bottom the bottom stories and we we had no choice but to jump you know so I, I keep a rope there and uh, uh why because it's common sense but if supposing the house was on fire and i'd got a rope and and, and i could get everybody out i could get get the grandkids out if the grandkids were there or, and and get get my wife out if she was there and then get myself out how crazy it would be if i said well look I, let me you know the house is burning down but can I let me pack this suitcase full of my books and my computer and then let's do this and let's do that no you wouldn't do this and yet you, you just make sure that you get out now some people who are thinking of becoming Christians they want to hold on to things they want to hold on to their sins some sins you know and they say oh, yeah I'll become a Christian but yeah I, I do lie a bit and, but and I, I, I sometimes cheat. I sometimes have my old habits. Oh, I'm going to hold on to them. I, I, I want to pack my suitcases. I want to come to Jesus with my suitcases full of my old life. No. If we seek Christ and seek his refuge, we have to let go of our past. Um, in Pompeii, there's, there's a... Uh, there's a... a, a not sure what we'd call it, a, a, a living statue of a thief that was encased in volcanic dust, uh, and basically his body became dust eventually, but they filled this cavity of when he'd been covered by this pyroplastic flow, and he actually is clutching on to, a, um, uh, to, to jewels. And they saw there was a hole in the wall, and clearly this man was a thief who'd, who'd burrowed through a hole when the volcano was exploding, got hold of a whole load of jewellery and was trying to make his way out when he was killed, holding on to, to his ill-gotten gains. Well, he wasn't holding on to it. He died. Now, Jesus said, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Let go of the evil. Take up your cross and follow me. 
If anybody's online is thinking about becoming a Christian, look, you, you need to let go of, of those things that are wrong in your life. Now, how can you do this? Only with God's power. You need to come to Jesus Christ, come to God the Father through Jesus, and ask for the power in your heart, through the Holy Spirit, to change. You can't do it by yourself. Ask to come to him and deliver you from that thing that's, that's holding you back. Just leave it behind. And be willing and obedient and follow Christ. This is wondrous love. And uh, you, may re- you may receive Christ by faith. That's just trusting him. To use my, um, to use my image of um, someone who's in a, in a burning building, um, you know, supposing they don't have a rope and it's 30 foot up and there's nothing below apart from concrete, you know, probably going to die. Then a fireman comes along on, a, on a, a cherry picking ladder and offers them, says, come, jump, jump into my arms and, I'll ca- and I'll be, you'll be okay. Well, it's an act of faith to do that, isn't it? You need to trust that that, that man is actually not going to release you. Well, that's what Jesus says to you tonight. Come into my arms. Trust me. And you will be saved. So let's now pray. Lord, we do thank you for your wonderful love to us. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us uh, to trust you with our lives. We ask you, Lord, uh, if there is anybody that is online, that is listening, that is thinking about coming to Christ, we pray, Lord, that you will indeed help them uh, to trust that you died for sinners. God so loved the world... He gave his only son, so whoever believes in him shouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. And we pray, Lord, that you will uh, give faith and and help us all uh, to trust you. Uh, And we thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.